Now entering Nerdist.com. Today's episode was recorded at ATX Television Fest. Were you there? It was the best, right? Were you not there? Why weren't you there? Season 6 badges are now on sale. That's for next year. You don't want to miss this. They've already got some amazing things cooking. Go to ATXFestival.com. Get your Season 6 badges there. Uh, Also, they're putting up uh, videos versions of all of the podcasts that I'll be releasing and all of the panels and stuff, uh, some that I won't be releasing. Go to atelevisionexperience.com, atelevisionexperience.com, and you can see the video version of this and uh, many other panels and events that happened at ATX this year. Hope to see you in 2017. television that is really out there to make a difference, that tells a story that can change hearts and minds. And and all of our panelists here today uh, have been deeply involved in stories that do just that. They're not only really compelling and phenomenal entertainment, but at their their essence, they have a message as well. And and I think that is just something that we always should be celebrating. So uh, in no particular order, because uh, I can't really see what's down there, uh, from the Nick, Jack Amiel is here. From The Path, Parenthood, and for those of you who were there last night, Friday Night Lights, Jason Kadams is here. Uh, From Men of a Certain Age and the upcoming One Day at a Time, Mike Royce is here. I know, they're all over the place. Uh, From uh, Jane the Virgin, Jenny Snyder Ehrman is here. Sorry. And then uh, uh, subbing in, unfortunately, Bradley Bredewood could not be here from the Fosters, so we have uh, Carter Covington. Thank you so much, Carter, from faking it. So, um, really, as we get started about this, uh, I feel we have somehow gone beyond the era of the very special episode of Blossom. Uh, and I want to talk a little bit about that. Why, why do you think there was that era of the very special episode, and why is it no longer necessary? Carter, we'll start down there with you. <laughs> yes, everybody turn on your mics. Everyone turn on your mics. Um, I, I think it's just the evolution of, uh, you know, I, th- I think when, when so many of the topics that that were revolutionary were first discussed, you kind of had to have a very special episode because it's never been seen before. Everyone was nervous about the, the way it would be portrayed. I know at least you know, my show, which deals heavily in LGBT themes, there are so many LGBT characters now that we've been freed from the very special episode feeling. You know, the characters are allowed to exist and have a full spectrum of experiences and, and uh, emotions and, and be like everyone else. So I think it's, it's a sign of progress. Yeah, I, I mean, to me, the, the very like the very special episode connotes, you know, it's cheesy and over the top, and um, it's sort of a style. And there's something when for comedies, especially, 
there was sort of the era where Seinfeld uh, banned hugging. You know, it just became very unfashionable to have emotion in a, in a comedy. And now there's just so many different kinds of shows. It's, it's something I've discovered about myself is I just I, I like that. I love, of course love Seinfeld and I love the comedies that don't have a lot of emotion in them. But um, it, it, it's it when it, you know on, on Raymond there was always a something there. Even you know it was never a heavy show, but there was always always sort of grounded towards something. And um, to me, there's just now a, just a, a, dare I say an exciting <laughs> array or you know ways to to do uh, to do that without seeming like it's uh, a lesson. And culturally, I think we've evolved where we um, expect each other to feel more things, and it's not like no crying in baseball. You know, like now the dads come on if you're crying and you're pitching, and they ask you if you're okay and if your feelings were hurt, and you know. And I think that that's part of the cultural evolution in, in terms of a more sensitive society that has a lot more. Uh, there's just a lot more space to talk about things and still be funny, and still, you know, it doesn't have to be so bifurcated. Yeah, I think we've we've. I am guilty of having had to write a bunch of those very special episodes with Thomas early on. You know, I think I wrote a very special episode of Empty Nest, I kid you not. And Blossom shot next door. It was a with Thomas show. So, yes. Um, part of it was marketing. Um, part of it was really a, a viewer discretion advised. Um, you know, there was, I remember, this is going to sound crazy, but, um, you know, there was, a, there was an episode, I b- believe it or not, where um, Arnold on the, uh, on, on, uh, Different Strokes gets abducted, believe it or not, by Gordon Jump from WKRP. And there's this really super weird episode of, like, Different Strokes. And he's, like, in the basement of the building, and he's going to be clearly, like, touched. And um, people, like, freaked out. And they were like, what is, what, what is this? I, my kids watch Different Strokes, and now the Maytag repairman is touching Arnold Jackson. And so one of the things that they did was they used to have us do is, well, we can market it as a very special episode and it'll warn people or that families can watch it together. So the very special episode was also just a cop-out. Um, this that, may be controversial. Please prepare yourself. Yeah, exactly. Um, I mean, when, when you think All in the Family, the first episode of that, there was such a disclaimer on it that was really like, do not watch this show. We have nothing to do with it. If you hate CBS after this, we didn't put this on the air. <laughs> so... You know, there's, there, there, is, there was a fear. You know, there was, there, there was always a Christian group that was saying, you know, so it sort of had to be like, here comes the lesson. You know, the other thing about it is that there's also something um, about saying a, a very special episode, which is, um, you know, specific to the idea that this story can be told in one episode. And, you know, one of the things that I felt like when I started, when I, in the pilot episode of Parenthood, when I was thinking about whether or not to include the story about autism in, in, in the show, um, it, one of the things that made me really um, hesitate to do it and struggle about, uh, about whether or not to do it was the fact that I had really not seen a show um, deal with an, an issue like that in a real ongoing basis. Like I knew from personal experience that you know, that story was not a three-episode arc or a four-episode arc. That was going to continue for the life of the series. So, um, you know, the, the sort of ability that I think we sort of have now and the, the, the freedom that we have now to take on those kinds of subject matters that become not only subject matters that you take a, can take a, like, a look at, but ones that become, in, you know, sort of ingrained 
in the fabric of what the show of what 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 your show is about, when your series is about. That to me is the um, exciting thing about you know how far we we've, we've come. Are there some early examples of? of- either episodes or programs that you think, though, really did work in that fashion, that, you know, really did resonate with either you or with an audience that you liked? Norman Lear, Norman Lear, Norman Lear. Um, You know, when uh, you... I mean, I'm 48. I think I may... I'm old. And, um... um, I got you beat. But... Maud... Susan Harris wrote the episode uh, where Maud has... decides to have an abortion. And... If you think abortion was controversial, is controversial today. Um, by the way, my show, we just abort everything. But, um, <laughs> yay, cable. But, um, uh, but, you know, there are, I mean, that was watershed. That was extraordinary that you would have that moment. You had the moment on All in the Family when, when uh, he, he meets a female impersonator. And, he had given, and she had passed out in the back of Archie Bunker's cab. And he had given her mouth to mouth, assuming she was a woman. And he has to come to peace with this idea of, of, a, of a non-traditional woman in a, like 1975. So I think that there are all those things that, that, for me, it was that 70s television when you had Mary Tyler Moore where they turned to CBS and CBS said, said okay, the, the, we, we did some, some, uh, some research and we found out that America hates um, Jews, blacks, divorcees, and people with beards. So we don't want any of those people on our network. And, and, the, and literally, the, the creators of the show looked around the room and said, everyone in, the, in this room is one of those things. And I think the bottom line is that we decided to start reflecting America more. Anybody else? I know uh, the day after scarred me, I think, for, for life, if people remember that. Um, but another, I think another really great example of just how far we've come when Roots was first supposed to have been on the air, ABC was so scared of what it might do to the ratings, they crammed it all into one week just so they could get it all run through. And yet we can see where we are now. Uh, The popular adage is that you write what you know. Um, I don't really want this to turn into a therapy session necessarily, but I'd love to understand how some of the storylines that you've told in some of the, the, your many programs you've done resonated with you, why you felt you had to tell that story. And Jenny, I'll start with you because I'm not sure that a, a, a Latina virgin having a baby is, is necessarily your story, but I'd love to know where it came from. Um, though that part is not the story, I feel like, uh, you know, uh, in, in, any, in anything, you, you're figuring out who character... For me, the, the, the thing that felt very close to me was being an ambitious woman with a complicated relationship with your mom. <laughs> and I can relate to that. Um, you know, and, and uh, you know, it, we do a lot, it, Catholicism is really big in our show, and uh, I'm not Catholic, but, you know, we try to fill our writer's room with different points of view, of course. And also just, um, we try to, uh, our kind of storytelling, we call it, is just real compassionate storytelling, where we just really try to understand everybody's point of view, even our villain's point of view, even, you know, they're the hero in their own story, all of that. Um, and for me, as I started to think about um, Jane and who she was and this, this per- person who had her whole life planned and then, you know, this, through this twist of fate and uh, her, her, her whole life was undone and what would she do then, I can imagine uh, how that feels and I can... Uh, and I can relate to that as a character. Now, I'm not, um, you know, I don't sp- speak Spanish to my grandmother or anything like that, but, but 
I can create, I, I wasn't also trying to represent everyone. I was trying to represent Jane, who was the daughter of Zoe, who was a character who was the daughter of Alba, and how that family functions, not how every family functions. Um, and to me, you, you look for our points of, of similarity and humanity, and that you know is a nicer way, I think, to approach life in general to, than to look at everything that separates us. Um, and so we sort of attack story from that point of view. And you know, even if... Uh, if we were to do abortion on Jane, there would be uh, Jane, who's pro-choice, and, and her grandmother is not for her own reasons. And I would, I mean, I have my own obvious uh, point of view, but I would just be respectful of, her, you know, of her point of view, not try to change it, but try to work in, because respect is really where I think everything, where we can all coexist. So, you know, it's really just trying to understand and, you know, you create conflict and and uh, then put out into the world what you think. Every show has a point of view, so you always want to... In our show, we're very overt about our point of view, but every show has a point of view, so... Um. Yeah, I, I would, to echo that, I think empathy is is kind of a, the most important criteria for the job that we do because, um, you know, if if we can't connect with what the character is experiencing, even if we've never experienced it ourselves, we can't convey that to our audience. And, and it's funny, about three years ago I was developing and, and everybody was saying, okay, the networks, the networks really want people to come and pitch them passion projects, passion projects, it's got to be passion projects. So, so even if this didn't happen to you, tell a story about how it happened to you. <laughs> you know, and you're like, this is ridiculous. You know, I, I don't really think everything that I write has to have been something I've experienced, but I think I should be able to speak to what it touches in me as a human being. And I should be able to say, this is how I'm going to convey that to other people. Um, to me, that's, that's kind of the core of what we do. Yeah. Well, Jason, your stories, though, do seem fairly personal from parenthood. I mean... You have a son who... Um, yeah, no, there's, there's, there, I think there's a lot of... You know, I think that, you know, on Parenthood, we just... You know, it was, it was really all about accessing our lives. I mean, and not only for me, but all the writers. And we would basically sit around the writer's room and wait for somebody to start crying, and we would know that would be our story. <laughs> uh, you, know, but, uh, you know, but there were several... Um, things that were taken more, you know, directly from, you know, my experience in a way that was sort of more autobiographical than what I would normally want to do. One was that story, that Max's um, story about Asperger's. There was also the breast cancer storyline and, and um, you know, the, and then in the final season, the, the story of, um, of you, know, uh, you know, Zeke's death. I mean, were all stories that were, you know, um, started from very autobiographical places. But, you know, the thing is about it is, you know, you either start from a place that's autobiographical and then find the sort of rhythm and music and poetry and, and get out of that. It's all about facts. Or you start from a place that isn't autobiographical and you find your personal way into it. Okay. Either either way, you know, works. But it sort of goes back to what you're you're saying is it's like all about trying to find where you find why this story is, um, you know, sort of deeply personal to you. And even though 
it seems ridiculous when they were, people were saying they wanted the passion projects. There is, I, I, there is something about that. There is something about, like, when you're in a writer's room and somebody pitches something that is real to them and something that they've experienced either with themselves or a friend or a loved one or a you know, relative, and they start telling that story, um, you immediately perk up. I mean, there's no doubt about it. Mike, you, um, you kind of told the other end, I think, of kind of the Jane the Virgin story with men of a certain age. It was men who have gone through this part of their life and suddenly realized their dreams are not going to be happening. So I wonder where that kind Yeah, of... I related to that. Yeah. <laughs> what are you trying to say? Yeah, I had a very instructive experience in terms of writing what you know because I did, I mean, that was really, I am those guys. I'm not any one of those specific guys, but... Ray and myself obviously related, you know, and it was coming very close to things that we experienced. And then when I went on to do Enlisted, you know, that was a Kevin Beagle created it, and had, you know, I was coming aboard to help run the show. And I read the script, and I was like, I don't know anything. I mean, the army is, I have no clue. But something in it just spoke to me, you know, and, and I just, because he was going for showing these people not as, you know, war heroes or as, but th- 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 this is their job and they all have different uh, passion about the, the job that they're in and he had really based it on his three brothers, the personalities of the guys, if his three brothers were in the army. And just reading it, even though I didn't know anything about any of the technical things they were talking about, I really related to just the relationships in there and it was just immediately felt like something I could write and, and once I started doing it, you know, we just did enormous amounts of research uh, to make sure we were getting the culture right, for sure, and that was the challenge, but to me it was a, a great, it, it made me realize I don't have to just write, you know, 50-year-old <laughs> guys who are maybe a little depressed, um, <laughs> and that, you know, you, you can, you, that there's so many ways to relate to characters, and you just need to find that way. You know. Jack, I wonder if you want to talk a little bit about the addiction storyline that you... Well... Yeah, I mean, I'm not an addict, and um, food notwithstanding, but, um, (laughs) you know, my show has this doctor who is hooked on uh, cocaine, and then we kindly got him hooked on cocaine and heroin in this second season. Um, You know, you always got to bring up those stakes. And um, the thing is that there's a universality in that, in the idea that, I mean, geez, Prince just died of the same damn drug, you know? As, as the people who were dying back then of, of opiates. And so, you know, there is a universality. I mean, look, you're trying to... There, there's two halves of this. There's the universality, which is kind of the river, and then there's the specificity, which is the gold nuggets in the river. And what's great is that... I mean, I'll use Jason just because I'm going to fanboy here for a second, but I could look at my so-called life and say, wow, I, I, I'm clearly Jordan Catalano. No, I'm... <laughs> No, I'm, I'm, I'm obviously Brian... I feel like Brian Krakow, um, except that Catalana couldn't read, so that's probably me. But, um, and I said, well, and that felt like a little bit of my childhood. But then he goes to high school and he does Texas. I know nothing about Texas, right? I, this, you are what I know about Texas currently. <laughs> and I, I don't know these people. I don't know Tyra Collette. I don't know... I'm, I'm frightened of people like this, you know? Like, I don't know them. And yet I'm sitting there so wrapped and riveted and going, I get it. I get this world because they have hopes and dreams and wants and desires, and that's the universality. And then, 
you know, Texas Forever is the specificity, the moments or the, what his pickup truck looks like or whatever are the specificity that make me go, wow, I'm in a world right now that I don't know but I am thrilled with because I'm connecting to the universality of this guy uh, or of these women or whatever. So I think we always have to be really careful to say, oh, well, that's not me. I mean, George Lucas never went to space. But it doesn't matter because Luke Skywalker is, is George Lucas, a kid from Modesto, California, who felt like he had something special to do or say in this world, but he was, but who was ever going to find it out because he's out in the hinterlands of California. So I think that we need to use that. I mean, for us on the Nick, we're in 1900. And the sad part in a lot of ways is that the evils and the misery of human beings, you know, of racism, sexism, um, you know, dis- despising the poor, disliking immigrants, all those things that were giant issues in 1900, luckily have gone away. Um, uh, no, I mean, are still so prevalent. And people are like, oh, you're holding up a mirror to society. I'm like, no, I'm telling a story. Society just hasn't changed. And, you know, we've gotten kinder about addicts, which is the nice thing, is that we at least are kinder about them, but we're still addicts. And we're still self-medicating because we're still miserable humans. So I think that that, for me, is the idea of making sure that you're specific to 1900, but you're universal because they're humans. That, to me, also just brings up the idea of responsibility. Responsibility as a storyteller. Um, At our event on Wednesday, Alex Gonza accepted an award on Homeland and said he felt he had a responsibility uh, in this day and age and with what's going on in the political environment for the next season of Homeland not to contribute to the, the racial fears, not to contribute to the xenophobia. I wonder what you guys feel in terms of your responsibility as a storyteller is when you're telling some of these stories. You know, must it be right? Must it be sacrificed for some of the drama? How do you feel about you know, that, that kind of extra layer of all eyes are on you to make sure that you're telling it in the way it's supposed to be told? Uh, well, uh, I, I would say that um, you know, we did a on my show Faking, we did an intersex storyline, which was the first intersex main character on television. And, and, and seeing a community, the intersex community, and them reach out about finally seeing themselves re- represented in media and how powerful of an experience that was, was, was really the first time that I had really, really seen the power of television and, and its ability to, to sort of let people f- be seen and, and feel connected and find a community. Um, and so it's hard, I find it's a balance of, you know, I, 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 what are my intentions with the story and staying strong to those. And if, if your intentions in the story are good then, and you hold on to them, then I think it frees you to tell the narrative in a way that might upset people at times, but the end goal is a positive one. And, you know, if you're telling a story just for ratings or if you're telling a story just for spectacle, um, that's, I think, a really dangerous intention to... I feel huge responsibility to, um, I, to make sure... I mean, in everything that we put out, uh, I think that you know, represent, representation is important and it matters. And I can see through um, Twitter how much this family has meant, meant to fans. And so I, I feel that as well. I also think... You know, I, I feel, uh, you know, it's important for my daughter to see a, a strong, driven woman on TV that's not worried if she looks fat and doesn't, isn't worried about, um, you know, 
when she's going to get married but has a career. I mean, I, I, I worry about that all the time, you know, in terms of what images my kids are seeing and, and just what part of what conversation do I want to be contributing to because you're putting something out. And, you know, I, I think about the family. I want them to be able to make mistakes. They can't be perfect. It's not talking about perfect representation, but just that you understand where people are coming from and the different factors that go into making decisions. And, you know, whether it's race or class or religion or whatever, that that the, that this forms um, a person that, that we're writing about. And I just want, I, I, I do want Jane specifically to be a positive representation of a matriarchal family. Um, with a strong, driven woman at the center that accomplishes things that are not only related to boys. So, um, you know, that, it, that drives me a lot, I would say. And, um, you know, I, I had a small, tiny scene where there was, um, it's just the background, but uh, they were going to put together the crib, and it was just like, they're just going to be putting together the crib in the background. They're talking about a million other things, but I want them to be handing each other tools very quickly because we're not going to be putting on TV, like, who's coming over to help? Like, this is a family. They've put things together because they've had to because there is not a man in their house, and that's going to be okay. And we're not going to be talking about the fact that they can. We're just going to show that they can do those things. So, um, you know, it matters to me, I would say, a lot. Um, yeah. <laughs> Mike, I know you've got one day at a time coming up, so... Yeah. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> Can we all sing the theme song? Can we just do it? What's that? Oh, Can the we song? just sing the theme song together? <laughs> <laughs> this is it. Okay. Um, it's very high. <laughs> yeah, I would just say, uh, from in trying to sort of live up to Norman's, mm-hmm. you know, uh, legacy and uh, everything that uh, we've, you know, one day at a time is not even this version that we're doing. It's, it, it was not. It's not all in the family. All in the family had a bunch of adults that could come at issues from different points of view and was very adept at, at you know, much like the Carmichael show now, uh, having an issue every week. We have our issues uh, as long as they're organically, you know, coming through our characters, which we've been very excited to do so far. And, you know, I think what Jenny said basically earlier, it's like you have to make sure even when it's a... Make sure the points of view are represented and that everybody... There's not a point of view that's just evil, you know? People have points of view. There's, there's something there. There's no true villain in the situation. And um, making sure you're not just setting up a straw man to uh, argue against, especially, you know, if you feel strongly about a certain topic personally that you're depicting on the show having a responsibility to show that there are real people feeling real things that you may not agree with and making sure they're depicted as real characters. Jason, did you get a lot of response from people who had children with Asperger's? Did, I mean, mm. did you feel that you were telling their story and yeah. that you had some type of obligation to tell yeah. them? Yeah, I, I think that, it, look, you know, when I decided to, you know, tell that story, it was because I, it was really, I was doing, a, a, you know, a selfish thing, which was trying to find a way in as a writer, a way into, you know, there was this, you know, beautiful movie that I was sort of, you know, being inspired by, and I was trying to figure out, well, what do I have to say a generation a generation later after this movie? What what do I have to say to this person with me? So when I that you know, to me, it was honestly like I didn't get into it for altruistic reasons. I was telling the story because I was trying to find a way in, which is the first thing you always try to do. Um, then what happened was, you know. After the second episode of the episode of the series aired, there was a um, 
I was I that I I read this article about how um, when the uh, after the episode aired that that the Aspergers the word Aspergers was trending on Google, which was surprising. It actually wasn't. It was Aspergers, but it was actually various. Uh, you know, uh, misspellings of the word Asperger's. My, my favorite of which was Asperger's. <laughs> but um, little by little, I started to, to you know, to kind of, you know, uh, realize um, the, the sort of importance of, of, of it um, and that so many people, so many people who ha- have either themselves have Aspergers or other versions of autism, or they're, you know, have a son or a grandson. There have been so many stories about how the um, the show, um, you know, kind of, you know, helped in so many ways. Not necessarily by the specific, you know, stories that we were telling. Although I think a lot of those were very effective but just literally putting it out there in the atmosphere and putting it out there in the world. And by, by the, the fact that this was on a you know, network television show um, was, um, you know, in a way, just the fact of that was, you know, um, you know giving voice to this, um, this population of people. And, I would, and the other thing is, it went beyond... Asperger's and autism. It really did. It went because a lot of people in with any kind of disability and in the special needs community, it was meaningful to them because it was it was like this was um, they this was um, you know being you know um, shown in a way that was different in a way that was ingrained in the story itself. It wasn't about like we're going to tell this for an episode or two. It wasn't about we're going to do a, you know, what we said before, a an arc about it. It wasn't somebody else's kid. It wasn't like, oh, they have a, this kid has a friend. It was like our, one of our main people. And um, and I do believe that that storyline, I, 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 I really believe that storyline is, putting that in the pilot is why the series lasted as long as it did, um, because I think that that, uh, more than anything else in the show, um, had that initial feeling of, like, when people watch it, this feels real to me, and this feels like something I haven't seen before. Well, and it also, I think it helps people understand that this is not a, you know, one-hour thing that goes away. This is a daily struggle, but it's not everything that Max was. It just was a part of what Max was right, in the right. same way that, you know, now that we see enough gays in the, uh, on television, it's not everything a, that character is. That is just one part of what that right, character is. Right. Jenny, you, uh, you, met, you brought up Twitter, so I'd love to throw to the whole team, you know, w- what's been response like on social media? How has that helped when you're trying to tell a message? How, you know, how does that reinforce your message, or how do you sometimes, you know, find yourself in Twitter wars about some of the things? Jack, you know, did, did people associate the, the addiction of Thack with what happened with Prince? Did you hear anything about that? Um, well, for, for me, the Twitter thing, I had to be asked to join Twitter, and then I had to be asked to tweet, and then I had to be reminded to tweet. Um, but wh- I, I'll tell you what I use it for. I, I live tweet the shows, and because our show is so fact-heavy, and because our show has so much medicine in it, and because I'm such an insane history buff. So what I'll do is, um, at the end of every season, I write up about 100 pages of facts 
Um, and it could be an entire page just on how, you know, we'll have a scene where someone will put down uh, blueprints in 1900. And people go, oh, they had blueprints in 1900? Well, actually. <laughs> and I'll do a page of that. And it's basically like doing a, uh, a book. I mean, by the way, the worst student you ever met in your life. But for some reason on this, I am so obsessed that I want to get the history out because people are astonished. And so for me, what I've done is I've found a program that allows me to do a thousand words on Twitter um, that kind of posts on underneath like a photo, but it's a photo of my thousand words. And sometimes I will do, you know, two, three thousand words just on a subject like the McKinley um, election in, uh, in 1900 or, um, or uh, a certain medical procedure. And what you get is these people who are absolutely obsessed. And you're going, who the hell is reading this? I mean, I'm the asshole who's writing it, which is astonishing to begin with. But that's what I use it for. I use it to get more of the information out to people. And it's a terrible version of doing that, to be 100% honest. I would much rather be able to have like a full, long conversation with them. But it's where everybody comes and they get to basically indulge in the history if they want and, or ignore it if they want. Carter, I have to assume that Karma and Lauren and Amy and everybody just were followed and talked about and tweeted about. Yeah, t- Twitter. Uh, one, Twitter was really the only way the network marketed the show. So um, it's becoming the primary tool, I find, especially actors. They, they want them to tweet all the time, uh, and they don't pay them for it. Um, so that's the coming battle. But I find Twitter really... Um, I've kind of... Uh, developed some boundaries around Twitter for myself because I find that the access to fans um, is both wonderful and horrible. Um, And fans are reacting in the moment to you manipulating their emotions. And sometimes they hate it. And that's great because that means I did the right thing. But it's hard to get that in the moment when you know the next episode you're coming off of this and it's pushing your story forward in a way that's great so you know you get a lot of um it's just a lot it's a lot i'm I'm, and so i i kind of use it as when things come up uh in the show and i read it on twitter and people make good points i answer it in the show you know I'll, i'll i'll kind of or i did I don't have a show anymore, but um, when I did, and that was rewarding to me. I felt like that was the right conversation to be having with fans. I hear you. I'm responding within the context of the show to your criticisms. Mm-hmm. Jenny, have you heard? Like, J- Jane should never have done that. I can't believe you let Jane oh, do that. Ha- you know, half the people. If she ends up with Michael, I'm not watching. If she ends up with Raphael, so <laughs> I'm losing anyway. Um, I, at the beginning, the, uh, it's... Uh, I'm not a great tweeter. I'm a good retweeter. Um, Again, because of the boundaries. um, I found it really, really emotional at the beginning because, you know, um, white, there was a lot of, I saw a lot of people who didn't look like me particularly, but I saw a lot of representation of of myself on TV, and I didn't realize until I took Jane on the power of representation and what it means to see yourself or a family that looks and feels like yours. So getting all of that feedback on Twitter was really personal and really inspiring to me at the beginning. Like, this is this means so much to me. This means so much to me. And that, like, I feel emotional about it now because it made me, you know, want to do right by uh, people that were responding to it and, and feeling moved by it. Um, the other part of it is... The difficult part of it is when people hate what you're doing or, you know, uh, the whole when uh, uh, barrier tropes and, uh, you know, and I kept saying Jane and and, and 
I know that like my big twist at the end of the season is that she's not dead, but I can't respond, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. So I just, you know, he, how could you do this? How could you kill her? Don't you know what this means? And I'm like, there's nothing I can say and there's nothing I can, I mean, I, I can't say just wait because if I say just wait, you're, you know she's yeah. going to come and that's the last scene of my second season. <laughs> so, um, you know. The, no spoilers there or anything. Well, it aired, so, <laughs> you know. <laughs> um, you know, so the, the I, I feel like there's, there's also the, the thing that makes me uncomfortable about Twitter is the pile-on of it, and when somebody's down, the piling-on of it, and I feel just, imagine, it brings me back to that feeling in high school of people talking about you or pe- people not liking something about you. It, it, so that makes me uncomfortable, and it makes me uncomfortable if I'm not, even if I'm not the subject of it. I, it's, again, you know, you just feel compassionate and sad that that is happening. Um, at the same time, you know, when... When Hillary writes, delete your account, I'm going to retweet that. Yeah. That's awesome. <laughs> so, you know, it's, eh, I'm a retweeter of what I believe. And, and also, you don't, I never want to, I just, there's so much negativity. So I just try not to, I try to keep it kind of light and positive. Jason, have you seen any particular story from any of your shows kind of light up social media? Is the path a big generator of conversation? Yeah, no, people are really interested in the path, but I, I, I only hear this. I don't, I don't, you know what I mean? Like, I, 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 I really do feel that um, I, 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 you know, I personally don't want to be too, uh, get too caught up or influenced by um, <clears throat> the conversations that go on, you know, those, those conversations, because I, it just, it feels to me they're, they're sort of, they're skewed. And I think, you know, uh, I, I feel like more of my time is spent calming people down who work with me, particularly Ray R- Romano. Every once yeah. in a while, because Parenthood, I don't know if you know this, we did a little bit, but you really, Parenthood made him sexy. <laughs> <laughs> and I would see on Twitter once in a while, am I falling in love with Ray Romano, SMH, you know, uh, like, is, is he sexy now? Or what? So he can't be trusted to click on anything because then he goes down the rabbit hole and then it's three days of neuroses, you know, and he knows that about himself and you know that, you know, but every once in a while I'll send him a screenshot, you know, so he can't like click on anything, but I'm like, here's some positive feedback, just enjoy that and don't... <laughs> Uh, I, I want to open up to the audience in just a second, but I have one kind of final question, which is taking it a little bit back to the very special episode. Um, how are the networks responding? How are the studios responding when you now go in with kind of these more message-related stories? I mean, are they more embracing that? Does, is it selling? You know, it all comes down to, I think, uh, Javier this morning at the um, panel for Barrier Tropes was all about, uh, at the end of the day, it's all about the money. Mm-hmm. Is, is this, you know, does this make money? Right. I'll just get myself out of the way. <laughs> Um, HBO doesn't care. <laughs> um, no, uh, uh, very quickly, um, they really don't. Just to tell your story. Um, and luckily, the way that premium cable gets monetized, it doesn't play at all. Um, they're, they're, they're the ones who give me the notes that are opposite what I've gotten from the networks, which are, no, no, take more time. No, no, no get, tell your story more slowly. I mean, it's, you're, you're like, but... I was trained by networks that made me throw everything in the pilot. And so they're, I'll just say that they've been extraordinary, so I don't have to do that. So, I mean, I think we live in a, in a, in a world now where, you know, um, 
you know, television is so sophisticated and so good. There's so much great television out there that, you know, it's important that what we, the stories that we tell reflect the life that we know. And I think that, I think that uh, platforms and, uh, and, and networks are more aware of that now. And I, and I saw that ev- evolve over the course of the time between doing Friday Night Lights and Parenthood of, you know, um, doing an abortion story on uh, Friday Night Lights and that they, um, you know, the, the network was, um, <clears throat> you know, supportive of, the, of us doing that story, which I was um, glad, happy with, but I didn't know they would be. But they, but it's still very, very, um, they were super, um, it, it managed the situation very, in a, in a, in a good way, you know, wanting to be responsible and showing all sides of the, of the uh, of it and and all that uh when we start when we did when i did the asperger storyline in um in in parenthood there was um they were uh, there was a moment where they were worried about that storyline there's a moment i was worried about that storyline which i forgive myself for there's a moment that they were worried about it which i don't forgive them for um (laughs) (laughs) um and uh but we but we but we pushed it through and you know um you know, um, didn't sort of water it down. And, and then I remember when I was pitching wanting to do this cancer story in season four, which was going to be a major season-long storyline, um, which I was worried that they would feel was sort of, you know, sort of too heavy for it. I had this big pitch, you know, um, sell, you know, sort of, you know that I that I sort of form, formed, uh, you know, for them, and you know, got on the phone with them and started to do the pitch. And they, a couple minutes into it, they said, "Jason, stop! We're you know, you know, we're on board with the story. We want you to tell the story." <laughs> it was it us. was right. Stop yelling at us. Um, but I think it's just sort of, it's indicative, just seeing how the how it's evolved in a in a really good way over 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 time. I think uh, something that's exciting, I feel, is this, the movement, the emergence of digital platforms, the movement of the industry in that direction, and the proliferation of TV has meant that you can create shows that are a little more narrow in scope than you ever could have before. And, you know, seeing a show like Transparent find success, I think it really shows that, you know, now if you, if you have a story you want to tell... Before it would have been well. Not enough people are going to connect with that. And now it's like, no, you, let's put it out there and 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 see what kind of audience it is. And I think that's really exciting. It's great. Yeah. Uh, questions from the audience. Well, first of all, Jenny, I just wanted to say that you talked about sort of representation and how you start some people, but I just wanted to specifically oh, yeah. say thank you because I think that. Oh, sorry. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> thank you, Jack. For no, no, I just wanted to say thank you because I think that Jane is the most um, realistic and helpful portrayal of a new mom that I've ever seen on television. And I think that's a struggle that women have that's silently and like not talked about. And I just, that was a big deal for me to see on TV. So thank I just, you. I, I should say that was very personal. <laughs> <laughs> for so me too. thank you. I appreciate um, that. Yeah, so thank you. Um, no, so you talked about, um, there were sort of two different things that were talked about. One was this idea of representation and people seeing themselves in the characters you're creating. And the other was, was, 
I was just telling Jane's story. I was just telling the story about this person and her mother and her grandmother. So how do you reconcile those two sides of telling a very specific story about a specific family and the fact that generally people are going to see themselves in the story you're telling and it needs to kind of speak to a greater audience? It's, it's funny that... I think the more specific you are, the more people relate because you find all the colors and all the nuance in it. So it's like nobody reacts all one way. And if you create enough circumstances where the audience understands where this character is and if they understand the character enough, then I feel like they understand their choices. And and it's, it's, to me, the more specific you are about your character and the, like... not leaning on stereotypes and just thinking about them and thinking about them and knowing how they would react if they were on stage on a panel and if they were not asked on the panel and if they were, you know, just every nuance of them. If you know it, then I feel like people respond to it because you're, you're showing some something real between them. I mean, the writers in the room joke that when I come in, if they're going to try to sell something to me, they'll always start with, so this happened to Jessica. You know, and at one point I go, I, I can't believe that Jessica's had this life. I mean, this is crazy. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, um, but it, it, you know, you do, you, you are pulling specific things all the time. I mean, the, you know, everything in that motherhood story from even, you know, her 20-week sonogram where there was everything. I mean, my husband was traumatized watching it. He was like, I'm I'm living your pregnancy again, all all of your your craziness, you know, everything. And, um, you know, so I think there's a lot that you put in that's specific. And then as specific, if you make the character super specific, then I think people, you know, we meet so many different people every day of our lives and you just, you feel compassion and attachments and it... I don't know. I don't think I'm answering the question very well, but I think you do it no, both no, at no, the no. same time. Absolutely. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Hi. Um, sorry, this might not be the right panel for this issue, but with the hot topic of non-white casting and everything, I was wondering, particularly with like Laverne Cox being cast, that Laverne Cox on Orange is the New Black being cast, how powerful that was. And I was just wondering if I don't really have a question. I just was thinking that you know it might be kind of an interesting to topic topic to talk about with the casting of characters and how there's an influence with that, or I guess the casting of the actor, the influence that you might have with that. Do you guys feel pressure to be diverse in all of your cast, or is that just something well, now that you? I mean, if you're not diverse, you're not going to have a great story. So I think that's right. You know, and it's it's there's, there's certainly pressure. That's good. <laughs> it's good that there's pressure, but it's also you, you have to also you have. To, Everyone has a comfort zone, you know? I know a lot of white people. That's just the way it is. <laughs> I know that I have to not go. I know a lot of white people, so I'm going to cast a lot of white people. So I have to, you know, with casting, it's really interesting to watch and keep very aware of why am I seeing so many white people for this? Not, you know, I, 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 like, you have to, every role make sure you are, you know, that people are being represented. And there's very, very few roles, I'm not saying there's not some, but there's very, very few roles that need to be a certain, uh, you know, sometimes the role calls for it. But um, I think for me, what is, what I'm really putting pressure on myself to, to make sure of is default should not be white. You know what I mean? It should be whatever. <laughs> and uh, there's a lot of roles that... Uh, that for one day at a time that we're now casting, and I mean it's a Latino show to begin with. The kids, the Cuban family, but you know we're 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 making sure that then when we go on for guest casting, it doesn't mean like oh now it's just white people. You know, there's everybody. Uh, uh, the world is a very. 
I need a new phone. Um, <laughs> the war, you know, America is a different place than it was uh, uh, 20 years ago and 50 years ago, and it needs to be, it needs to look like that on television. And we're trying to, you know, make sure. Carter, you, I know, cast I think the first intersex actor in a role as an intersex character. Did you feel that you needed to do that? I mean, uh, well, this season uh, or last season, we had yes, we cast an intersex actor to play uh, an advocate, intersex advocate, and we also cast a. Um, a, a trans man to play a five-episode arc. Um, and, you know, I really feel like Shonda Rhimes has totally yeah. changed TV and cha- changed it for the better. She's changed the discussion. It used to be when you talk about casting, I mean, I've only been doing this 10 years, but my first pilot, I remember we were talking about ethnic, ethnic casting, and um, people were like, the, the assumption was, there are not enough diverse actors to fill these lead roles. It's just they're just not. And now it's the opposite. It's I we want to see diversity. We better be presented with um, can, a reflection of that in the candidates that we have. And I think that that there are more there are more diverse actors coming in and into Los Angeles. And there's a greater talent pool. I think it's it's really an exciting time. I think um, to be a TV creator. Uh, and and you know. I think it's about making the effort to, to uh, not only, you know, I wanted, a, I wanted a trans actor to play a trans character because I felt like this is important for visibility for the trans community and that they'd be able, but it's also illegal to say, I will only cast a trans actor. So there's some legal issues, but, but the, the spirit of it, I think, is that everybody feels like they're being reflected on their television screen, and, and that's the expectation now versus, versus the exception. I think that one of the things that we have to all be cognizant of, speaking on the Television Academy behalf, is it's not just in front of the screen, though. I mean, where yeah. we really need to be focusing a lot of is what's going on behind the scene, below the line. You know, who's doing costume, who's doing makeup, but it's who's in the writer's room, who's directing some of these episodes. And, you know, we're starting to see a good trend that way, but we've still got a long ways to go in terms of diversity argument. Absolutely. We need to hire more white people. Um, <laughs> you know, for me, I get to cheat. And I'm incredibly lucky. Um, it's funny. Uh, a friend of mine, Kenya Barris, um, did an episode about the N-word. And it was like really, you know, he, he did it beautifully on Blackish. But on my show, it's what, it, it's such a common word. And we use it very sparingly. But I get to cheat because I get to look and go, there would never be a white person in this room. Or there would never be a black person. I will look at a scene and I'll go, we got to pull that extra because black people, the whole point of this is that it's a racist society that would never allow that person in the room. So I'm in a very strange position, but I'm also, I go to places that are segregated. And one of the things, there's a great book um, that Henry Louis Gates wrote called Colored People. And I use it as a touchstone. And what he talked about was about African-American institutions. And one of the things that integration brought was sort of the death of some very specific African-American institutions. And so what we try to do is to go to African-American, you know, to a bar that no white person ever walks into and show African-American culture. But the whole point is that we have to be racist because that's the way it is. When I look at the, at a group of doctors at my hospital in my in my surgical theater, I look up one day and there's an extra who's got a yarmulke on. And I'm not an anti-Semite. I'm self-loathing as a human, but I'm not a self-loathing Jew. And I go, we got to get rid of the yarmulke guy, you know, because no Jew would have been allowed in that. No, it, that guy doesn't show up. 
And so I have the opposite thing. And I, it's great because we have enormous number. We have a huge African-American story in ours. Our, our, we have our, 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 nine of our main characters are, are women struggling. But we have to be, we, what we're trying to do is show the world as it was and as it shouldn't have been in most cases. And so we have to be bigots. And that's really weird and oddly freeing. Um, not because I want to be a bigot, but because you can, you can, you can say this is, this is a black cultural moment and we get to show it and you people get to go out. You don't, this isn't yours. So I'm sorry, there won't be other people in here. Uh, we have time for probably one last question. Hello. Um, my question is um, basically about... So as artists, I recognize that when you're putting your art out there, the audience has an opportunity to interpret what they want. But have there been moments when you've wanted your audience to take away something specific, whether it's recognizing police brutality exists or that love is love? Is there something that you always want people to walk away with when, when you uh, shoot something? On our show, it definitely uh, is immigration reform. Um, and I feel like we're very overt about that, and we put it in, you know, uh, one of our characters is undocumented, and we wanted the audience to attach to this character, Alba, and to think, wait, why is she living in the shadows and unable? You know, we want them to have that specific reaction to look at, like, why we're make, making these decisions and, and things that are out there and, and uh, hopefully change a mind. Anybody else? Yeah, I, I know I'm faking it. You know, we always said in the writers' room, my, my mission was that we present the show where no character ever feels shame or, yeah. or issues about their sexuality or gender identity. Yeah. On Enlisted, we did a, you know, a PTSD arc uh, that was kind of the through line of the season. And that was the most rewarding thing for me was that we, it was, we didn't, we're not heavy-handed with it, and uh, at the end, there was an active-duty veteran who wrote a long thing. We actually got a lot of uh, emails and tweets of people who, who related to it, and uh, again, I started that show not knowing anything about the Army or, or the issues really beyond the very surfacey kind of thing, so uh, it was rewarding that it, you know, we were able to get that out there. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I was to say, to just really wrap up, what, we, what we're all saying is tell the truth. Find the kernel of truth, and the problem is that the truth is that our society has an enormous number of flaws and inequities in it. And I think what each of us is saying is, it is that you can find whether it's the how how the people with Aspergers are treated, or or how um, undocumented people, or how um, the LGBTQ community is, you know, or veterans. We have a lot of things, and what we need is conflict in our stories. So what Jason said is true. It's selfish a little bit, which is, well, this is fascinating. This is interesting. Oh, and by the way, you know, you can do well and do good at the same time. And I think by telling the truth, you know, the universality is our society needs, you know, some, some light shown and some stuff. Thank you guys so much for being here. Thank, Thank you, you for being in the audience.
Thanks. So I'm going to bring out your moderator um, from Entertainment Weekly. We have Miss Lynette Rice. Uh, I, I got to tell you my quick story first. I remember when I first went on the set of The Shield, and I, I, be, I think it was before it began, and um, they were out shooting at Prospect Studios. It's deep in L.A. And um, Solberg, the publicist for the show at the time, he found some quiet al- alcove that I could interview Michael Chiklis, who uh, obviously is Vic Mackey. And I remember, um, I remember it vividly. Uh, Chiklis came in in a very tight black shirt, and of course his tight jeans, and of course that fabulous bald head. <laughs> and he would pace excitedly as he was talking about it. And while I'm taking notes, I, I, listen, I had this inner dialogue that I know that I should be paying attention to his description about this rogue anti-hero who leads this uh, corrupt strike team in Los Angeles. But really, the only thing that I could focus on was when did the commish get so goddamn hot? <laughs> it was so bad, and I could feel my, the temperature in my face. Anyway, so when Sean created the show, I, I'm not sure if I was the demo, that he was looking for, but I'm so glad that he and his incredible band of merry men gave us what we're about to talk about today. So anyway, let me uh, introduce them all. Uh, first off, of course, the creator and executive producer, Sean Ryan. of the total man, Kurt Sutter. Uh, Next up is the wonderful Glenn Mazzara. Scott Rosenbaum. And the one and only Charles Chick Egley. Uh, the quick question from the very beginning. Where were you? Can you still, to this day, remember where you were when you came up with the idea, how it all came about? Uh, yeah, I, I had uh, I'd been a guy who'd been struggling trying to decide whether to be a comedy writer or a drama writer. And as a result, I wrote a lot of comedy scripts and a lot of drama scripts. And I had spent two years working on Nash Bridges, which was kind of a hybrid show. It was an hour-long show, and it had a lot of cop and, and P.I. tropes and, and, and story structure, but there are also humorous storylines. Uh, but I had sold a sitcom pilot to Fox Television Studios. Um, the, I, I'd essentially been hired to write one. There was no idea. And I spent about six months banding about different ideas of different sitcom ideas I could write. And I was always chasing what I thought networks were looking for, what they told me different networks were looking for. And and enough time had passed, and they never heard an idea that they liked enough, and I think they realized that, that pretty soon the option would expire, and it would be over, and I would never have turned in a script. Um, and I'd gone on police ride-alongs up in San Francisco as part of the Nash Bridges experience, and for those of you who saw Nash Bridges, you can imagine that like being in San Francisco, in the worst parts of San Francisco... Um, you know, on midnight on Saturday nights did not exactly deliver lots of story ideas for the show that was Nash Bridges. Um, but it did inspire me about 
what I saw, I realized I didn't recognize on television. And I thought there was a tone uh, and, and a sense of character that wasn't there. And so I remember the very first idea that, that became The Shield, I was in an unmarked police car in San Francisco thinking, I don't see this on television. What, you know, what, how could it be on television? And, um, and then it was just a matter, you know, I had a new kid at the time, and I was a, a father worried about you know, how he could protect his little daughter in this big, big bad world, and, and, and I just started writing down notes, and, and, um, and eventually that, that became the pilot, and I convinced them to, rather than take a sitcom script, I convinced them to let me write this hour-long Show that even though they weren't in the business of making hour-long shows, it was it was the craziest thing that they agreed to let me do it. But I, I, but I just sort of wrote it. It just came out. It was something I had to write. Before we get into the the show, I I want to address why I believe this panel is together. Because if you look at the writing staffs of most Hollywood shows, they don't singularly launch a bunch of different careers. But that was what's so extraordinary about this staff is what they went off to do. Uh, and they were personalities in their own right. So I was wondering if we could start with you, turn to your left, look at the person on your left, <laughs> say, what was your, this is what, what you, you're going to explain to me, what was your first impression of the person on your left, and then describe what their role was in the writer's room. What role did they fill? What character did they write for? Well, the first... <laughs> The first thing I remember was that Kurt Sutter had written a West Wing spec script. That's what I read that made me interested in meeting him. And, and I think I've mentioned this to you, but I, I remember thinking it was a really, really well-written, really, really good script. I read a lot of specs, and this was definitely one of the better ones. There was a very kind of what I felt was a slightly saccharine ending to that script. And I remember writing down, really good writer, wonder if he has enough edge to write for The Shield. <laughs> And then I met him, and after the meeting, I was like, yes, he's got enough edge. <laughs> and what, what I really appreciate, you know, I, I've lived a relatively clean, somewhat boring life. Um, and, and I don't know where my inspiration for dark shit comes from, necessarily, but it comes mostly from my imagination. What I really appreciated from Kurt was he sat down, and he was, he was very open and honest in the very first meeting he had with me. Um, uh, you know, about various issues he had dealt with in, in, in terms of uh, alcohol and, and drugs and overcoming them and, and, and living in that kind of world, you know, at, at one point. And, and I thought that that was a very valuable um, perspective uh, to have. And, and then he's just an amazing, amazing draft writer. So I would say that, you know, his, his role on the show was kind of agitator. Um, you know... <laughs> More than anyone, he wanted, you know, he, he didn't want the show to ever fucking sell out. You know, and, and none of us did, obviously. Uh, and sometimes Kurt's pitches were too far. <laughs> that he'd have to be, uh, he'd have to be reined in. Um, but, but he, he was just... Um, you know, sometimes he'd be a little bit of a lone wolf. Sometimes he'd be really collaborative. Uh, but his ideas were always fresh. They, um, they were always different. You know, I, I always tried to say, what have we never seen before? And let's do that 
in this episode. And it's hard, episode after episode, to come up with stuff that you haven't seen before. And we didn't always succeed. And nothing would annoy me more than to think we'd written and shot something that we'd never seen before. And then somebody would say, oh, I saw a Law and Order criminal intent that sort of did that. I'd be so pissed. Um, but that was our attempt to do something we'd never seen before. And, 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 and Kurt, you know, Kurt embraced that. Is he supposed to talk about Glenn? Or? Yeah, he talks about Oh, now you talk about Glenn. I, I will say this, because I've been kissing your ass all day, and I'll keep doing it. Um, <laughs> that, what I, that what you just said it was my, is, is my mantra in the writer's room. I've, I, I, I've, I've seen it before. I've seen it before. How can we do something different and get to it organically through, you know, through character and through narrative? Um, but that has always been my mandate. That's why... You know, all the crazy-ass shit we did on Sons was as a result of, nah, that's, that's not... And it wasn't even about, like, oh, that's too... That's not fucked up enough. It was really just about, that feels familiar, you know? That feels like, a, that feels like something, a staple for, for the genre, which, again, um, I, I just think it's my job uh, as an artist to, you know, to, sp- to spin it in, uh, through my vision, and, and, uh, and I learned all that from him. Now on to Glenn. <laughs> I'm talking about you. Oh, is that the exercise? Yes. 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 You turn to the left <laughs> so you get to talk about Skeeter. That's the up end. Um, so I came onto the show. Um, I'd never been on staff before. I was completely naive. And, um, um, and as fucked up as I am, I'm, you know, I, uh, I don't want... I didn't. I, I grew up with all women, right? And camaraderie was really difficult with men because I it just was an unfamiliar territory, and I just so desperately wanted to be Glenn's friend, and and he wasn't down with it. <laughs> he, you know, the first time we met, it was just like I, I just think he looked at me and went, "Fuck this guy." <laughs> That's true. But no, no in, the, in the beginning, in the beginning, you, I don't know if you were in your own stuff, but like, it was sort of like, this guy fucking hates me, you know? I remember seeing you in the bathroom, yeah, I remember seeing you in the bathroom one time, and like, I was like, hey man, and you're like, yeah. And, uh, but then, I will say... I, I had my penis out in the bathroom, so I, I, I didn't know what you wanted. Well, that's why I was there. <laughs> I told you I wanted to be your friend. Yeah. <laughs> so... Um, but then, you know, and I'm sure most of that is my imagination because he, he probably doesn't, that's why he doesn't remember it. Like most of the stuff, I'd make it up in my head. But I felt like, oh, this guy doesn't like me. And then, uh, and then I remember um, uh, when I wrote my first script, like he, he told me about the conversation he had with, with Sean and, and you, you were just like, you know, you went, and it's sort of like talking about the show. You, you went, it's pretty good, isn't it? You know, and uh, and then I thought, okay, I'm I'm okay. You know, and then you know, and now you know, now I love you. I love you too. Right. So when when you turned in that script, it was uh, 75 pages long, right? <laughs> and Sean came running into my room and was like, "This is the show." I was like, "Yeah, that's the show." Yeah, yeah. It was it was yeah. That was great. And then I, but I loved you before that. So so you wasn't, wasn't the second draft even longer? I was supposed yeah, to cut scenes? Tighten it up. By the way, I distinctly yeah. remember spending about three hours cutting the pages down to getting close to 60. Yeah. Yeah. So you never really did cut it down. You loved everything so much. It was all brilliant. It was all brilliant. <laughs> so it fell on me to make those cuts, as I recall. 
Okay, so I'm supposed to yes. talk about Scott or Skeeter. So, okay. Um, Skeeter's role on the show, first of all, amazing writer, amazing friend. And what happened was Skeeter and I spent a lot of time together on the show, walking around. We had incredible hours in which I would come in around 10 or 11 in the morning, right? We all would. And then Sean had the business of running the show and had to do a lot of calls and editing and stuff. So sometimes we would start to order dinner around 6 or 7 p.m. We would eat around 9 or 10. We would then start talking about what, what we had worked on in the room during the day. And, and then around 2 or 3, we would break, and, and Sean would say, okay, great, go write that, get it on my desk tomorrow by 10 a.m., so there was no time to sleep or whatever. It was that kind of, of boot camp, and it was fantastic. And so Scott would constantly come in. Remember my couch? He would come in and sit on the couch and just say, so what's going on? What are we doing? What is this? <laughs> we would constantly have these conversations. And, and the thing about the, the shield was, and the reason we're all so close, it was a, a completely immersive experience. Like, we lived... In that space. Yeah, yeah, it was like Big Brother. Yeah, that's exactly what it was like. We lived there, you know, and and so it wasn't like we were like a traditional writer's room where you just came in and you presented pitches and you did your thing. I mean, we were literally walking around going, what's going on? What are we doing? What's happening? What, what about if we do this? Let's challenge this idea. We would pull stories apart and put it back together. And I just remember you constantly coming into my office going, what's going on? Or whatever. But, but he wrote amazing scripts. The other thing about, about Scott was he, he, he's very um, worries about his scripts, how they're being received. So a lot of times we had a thing, whenever you wrote a script, everybody, and I still do this on every single show, you get an adrenaline rush when you finish a script and you go, this is the best script ever. It's the best script ever. And then you would constantly come in and go, well, Kurt wrote this great script. My script's not the best script ever. So now you would dig in and just rewrite the shit out of your next script. Right? Remember? Yeah, well, I always went after Kurt, so the bar was very high, and we were both first starting, so there was an immense amount of pressure to, to deliver... To, to basically try to trump him if possible. Um, we talked about the competitive nature of the show. Yeah. And it was very, very competitive because we all wanted our ideas to get on, on screen. And some of us, when we didn't, were, could be angry or petulant. Um, but I think that's what made it, made it so great. But it was, it was that sense of competition. And, like, you know, for me, you know, I, and, and Kurt and I were always really close and we were good, and we were good friends. But when you, it's like when you're batting after somebody who hits home runs every time. You know, you got to either hit a home run or a grand slam. You got to do that, and it's 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 a it's a high bar to to follow. But it actually, I think, helped me tremendously. Mm-hmm. All right, to your left. Can I just say one thing about Skeeter? Um, and first of all, I think you're an amazing writer and an, an off and, a, and an awful and an, an awfully awful, awful. and and an awfully good mentor. So thank you. Um, but Skeeter, when I joined, I was so naive about TV, right? I had no idea. I had this contract. It was, it was like a seven-year option or whatever. And I thought that meant I had a job for seven years. I'm like so fucking naive that, you know, options had to be picked up. And Skeeter, and, and I love Skeeter now, and he's one of my best friends. But like, you know, Skeeter like knew the dynamic of TV where there were two staff writers on. And, and you know, more often than not, one of them went away. So, oh my God, that's right. right. And that's so, right. 
and I would, I would come in and I'd be like, oh, da, 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 da. And, and I'd see Skeeter be like, fuck. <laughs> and I was like, I was like, what's up with this guy? And then I literally went the entire season completely naive, and probably for a really good reason, because if I knew that, it may have shifted my energy a little bit. But, uh, but then at one point, um, when, when both our options were picked up, I went, what do you mean picked up? <laughs> right, but then when both then then all the then all the, the, the sort of weird competitive stuff sort of just you know like settled in and and you know and uh, and I love Skeeter, but uh, do you remember? Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. I remember, I've completely forgot that. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right, so Chick Egley. Um, well, first of all, Chick had an interesting. Uh, the the four of us were there from from season one on, and we did season one and season two, and again. I think there was a really, real big sense of sort of, there was a proprietary feeling of this is our show, we're the ones who did this, why do we have to have a new person come along? Um, <laughs> and we're capable of doing this show without any other help. And the reality of it was, and Sean mentioned this earlier, was that we, were, we both really had not worked before. He had worked on like a show, a show or two. And Sean, I mean, Sean was experienced, but not experienced as a normal showrunner would be in a situation where they've got many, many years of experience. And so um, we heard that we were bringing in uh, a new writer, uh, but he wasn't just a new writer. He was this, you know, glossy, Emmy-winning, big shot. And I think all of us were a little... I don't know if we were intimidated necessarily. Maybe we were a little bit, but getting back into that competitive thing that... Again, and maybe it's just I have... I'm very competitive. It's probably because I played sports my whole life. It's what gets me... I want to win. And um, so I am very competitive. I'm also very neurotic. So the combination of those two make for a very unstable person sometimes. That being said... So he had to come into this room, and I wasn't the only one, I promise you. I probably had, I, at least it was probably, inter- I, had, I kept it inside. These guys, I'm sure it was bursting out of their, their pores that we don't want some guy to show up. And Chick came in under an immense amount of pressure, and literally within, I mean, 24 hours or less than that, we realized why Sean brought him on. And, um, you know, my first impression of him was he was one of the smartest people I've ever met. We, w- one of the things that was fun about doing The Shield is, and, and it didn't always come out um, in, the, in the text, but it was certainly in the subtext, is that there was a deeper meaning to a lot of the things we were doing. We were really trying to, um, to not be on the nose. And, and so we talked about a lot of deep issues. We talked a lot about American history, police history, and Chick was just an encyclopedia of it. And, um, and, and not only did he have a great brain for all that information, but on all the shows that he'd worked on, he had really learned how to deliver that information um, in a way that was engaging and, and, and dramatic and, and very quickly picked up on, on Sean's um, style, which for us was a little hard in the beginning too, which was no shoe leather. You went from point A to point D. We used to always say, well, what about B and C? People are going to get confused. And he would say, they'll catch up. Leave a little breadcrumb, they'll catch up. Um, and, uh, and Chick just stepped right in and he was just a gentleman and you know, when somebody comes in with that kind of experience and immediately can contribute and make a show better, all of the sort of hostility, not all the hostility, but a lot of the hostility sort of disappeared. I think you we were realized... the only one that was hostile. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, we realized that we had someone really special and, 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 um, and he fit in immediately and, and that's why he's you know, sitting up here with us right now. Chick's credits, by the way, if you don't know, are, include Murder One and Moonlighting, but most importantly, NYPD Blue. So you can see why 
Well, it goes back further than that. I mean, Chick won't talk about it, but St. Elsewhere was the first show that he worked on. And then he went on to run Moonlighting. Um, you know, so it's just an unbelievable track record. I was thrilled to have him, not only for his talent, but but we were kind of in uncharted waters, and I was in uncharted waters, and he'd, he'd been a part of shows that were even bigger supernovas than The Shield. You know, when you think about St. Elsewhere and, and, and Moonlighting in, in a time of, of, you know, three and four network universes, he'd sort of been there, and I was so interested. You know, I, I looked for any excuse I could get to just talk to him about those experiences and what, you know, what making TV was like in the 80s and 90s and how Bochco handled things and how Glenn Gordon Karen did things and... You know, and everyone that he worked with, David Milch, I, I, I just was a sponge to all the stories he had, and they, they helped me sort of manage my way through things. Chick, you get the privilege of laying it all on the line. What so, was Sean Ryan like? I'm not going to... Uh, no, no, a, you're over here. You turned to... You I'm not going to pull a Clint Eastwood and talk to an empty chair. You turn to this dude, Daniel. You get um, to talk so, about Sean. You so talk about Sean. Let me, let me talk about these guys. I, I was way too self-absorbed to know that there was any hostility or rivalry. <laughs> these, these guys were enormously patient with me. Uh, I had uh, was coming off of a, a real train wreck of a show um, and feeling very sorry for myself, and I dragged all of that in the room. Um, uh, the Dark Angel experience. What, what, I, what I didn't realize is that First of all, it had nothing to do with me. It was all about the balkanization of broadcast television. And they were just in a panic over a dystopic show and and all of that. So uh, I'd been running that show. And I I just wanted, after the politics, and and it was really, it got pretty nasty. uh, I just wanted to go and be a writer. And that's all I wanted to do. And I wrote a pilot for HBO that was uh, set in L.A., and it was sort of about the plate tectonics of race, um, uh, you know, between, say, north of Pico Boulevard and south of Pico Boulevard and, and what that looked like. And um, I, I began to get a little antsy not being on a show, and I talked to my agent, and I said, uh, listen, I, I've sat down and watched everything on TV, and the best show on television far and away is this show called The Shield, and I'd like to work on it. And they said, well, forget about that. I mean, you know, these guys are, first of all, you're way too old, and you're, you have too much experience, and they have had a bad experience with uh, some senior people and you're not going to forget about it. So um, Sean read my script uh, um, that I'd written for HBO and invited me on the show. And these guys are all talking about how they didn't know anything. But I came into a writer's room, um, and yes, it had all been first jobs for people, but it was as game-level a writer's room as I'd ever been in if not more so. And there was this enormous freedom. Of course, I, I didn't have the perspective that we, I, I was getting in on the ground floor of Basic Cable, because that really was the first show, and it made Basic Cable. And I, I just, uh, despite apparently these guys all hated me, I found it, I found it, although I do remember when I walked in the room the first time, uh, uh, Kurt, I don't know if you remember, I was talking to somebody and you sat there the entire time with your back to me. Uh, 
I'm but, nothing um, if not passive. But the, these guys were, uh, incre- were coming up with incredibly dynamic, out-of-the-box storytelling. There was nothing... Not, not that I had worked on shows that, where there was a predictability because Stephen Bochco sort of invented the, the notion of coming at things sideways. But this was as dynamic a room and as uh, sure-footed a room as I'd ever been in. And I felt immediately welcomed. Apparently, I wasn't. Uh, and uh, they taught me so much about storytelling that was new and different for me, just the, the uh, sheer volume of story that you could fit into an hour, which was, it was a different rhythm and a different cadence. Um, and I do remember sitting there one day and we were looking at an act three and I said no no we can't do that because we changed days in the middle of the act and everybody looked at me and well what's wrong with that and I said well you 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 can't change days in the middle of an act it'll confuse the audience and people went they all looked at me like what are you talking about and I realized that that was one of Stephen Bochco's rules that he sort of brought along with him probably from his universal days that you know uh, scenes have to have an establishing shot. You can't change days in the middle of an act because it's too disorienting. So what I realized was that I was really getting on a roller coaster ride where there weren't any rules, or if there were rules, they were uh, being broken. And it it's ended up being a singular writing experience for me. And the the best uh, the best several years that I spent in, in my career uh, ever um, and I, I don't know that I'll ever be able to match the experience I had with these guys because it was really really wonderful okay now you have to bust on Sean a little bit that was what you're supposed to do can I, <laughs> can I just say something we weren't hostile we, we were intimidated but we were as, as excited as we were intimidated yeah good cover <laughs> Uh, just real quick, I just want to point out, uh, just so everybody doesn't think that was all white dudes writing the shield, that, that, that we hoped uh, Liz Craft and Seraphine and Fierro could all be here today, uh, and they couldn't, and, 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 and they were three people who, who I put, let me put it this way, there was, um, each year on uh, the shield we would have a sort of big board that we, once we broke it up so we would list 101, you know, Vic does this, blah, 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 and, and at the end of the, and for some reason, I don't know what made me do it, but I, I saved all of those, uh, and then at the end of the run, so there were, there, there ended up um, being seven of them for the seven seasons, or were there eight, because we broke, because there was one year when we lived, we were split half, but but anyways, so, so at the end of it, I had them all encased, and I gave each of the writers one of them from a season. And you know, the four that you're... There were seven. There were another eight, because I kept one. I kept season one. But, uh, but I gave them all. And it's these four, and also Liz Craft and Seraphine and Am Fierro, that, that to me represented um, you know, the writer's room at its, at its height. You know, I, people always ask me all the time what was my favorite season of the show, and I... From a strictly sort of artistic perspective, I still think season five is the best season of the show. And I think the reason why that season was so great, A, because we had Forrest Whitaker, who was an unbelievable you know, recurring guest star, but also it was that we had these four, and Am and Sarah um, and Liz, at the, at the top of their games. And, and 
And literally every, all seven of them have gone on to run their own shows. And, and when you look back and think about the talent that was in the room, you know, supporting me, it, it was an amazing, amazing experience. I uh, one, one thing I just want to say about, that I learned also in the culture of The Shield was it was very much an open door. So uh, our support personnel, uh, our writer's assistant and the script coordinator, um, felt free to come in and be able to talk about story and pitch things from their own life experience, and I think that enriched the show a lot. Randy Huggins, who's... well, that's that's one. Of the, I'm so proud. Randy Huggins was a guy that I met on the pilot, who was a production assistant on the Bernie Mac pilot, which was sharing office space with us. And I brought him on as as our gopher, essentially, season one. He eventually became a writer's assistant. He eventually wrote or co-wrote a freelance episode. I brought him on as a staff writer on the unit. He's gone on to do other stuff at Korean Power, and then just recently it was announced that he's going to be running a show um, you know, for John Singleton for BET. So to see a guy come up literally from the guy who was getting us lunches to now having his own show um, is something I'm extraordinarily and proud ja- of. Jamie Turner came out of that show. He was the script coordinator, and he's uh, what a, a co-EP, I think, on... Some Rosewood. Rosewood. Uh, um, and, I mean, it was a place that really looked to grow writers in the culture of that room. Okay, we wanna, I want to move on. Bef- uh, but, actually, before we dive deep into the content, I just want to start. We've got to get back to our ode to the to Michael Chiklis. Uh, can you... Um, can you go back and... That's your fantasy, sweetheart. It is my fantasy. I'm so sorry. And it's like an on-running... It's a running joke at EW, too, but I, I, I don't care. Um, uh, can you go back to the process of finding your Vic, and then what was it like writing for him? Well, the story I've told before, I don't know if you've heard it or not, but, but it was a very frustrating experience to find the guy to play Vic Mackey. Uh, a... Nobody thought that anything good could be done on FX. So even if people read the script and liked the script, there was a ton of resistance from agencies, including my own, (laughs) that didn't want to send actors out um, and didn't even want offers. Um, Now, it was important to me at that point. I really wanted people to audition because I didn't know who Vic Mackey really was in my head. And nobody was really auditioning. Um, And then... I came to find out that Michael Chiklis read the script and really saw it and was wise enough to know that people wouldn't immediately think of the commish as Vic Mackey and, and, and knew that he would have to come and improve it. So about two days before Michael came in, I, I remember turning to Clark Johnson, our director, and saying, you know, I really thought the script was good, but, but you know, I'm watching all these auditions and, you know, maybe I'm not as good a writer as I think because these scenes just aren't playing well. And, you know, it's just not, it's not getting to where it needs to go. And then two days later, Michael Chiklis came in and he read, and it was long, it was like three, four scenes from the pilot. It was like an eight-minute audition. And it was just very intense. And we didn't say a word. He did it. He got out and walked out. I, I, think that, I think that audition is actually available on, on the extras of one of the DVDs. Um, and he walked out, and there was a pause, and I turned to Clark Johnson and said, no, I'm a great writer. <laughs> um, which I was you know, saying facetiously, I didn't really think that, but, but, what it, but it was a lesson that, that you know, the writing is literally zero without the actor. 
uh, and the actors zero without the writing. You know, it is a marriage where we both need each other, and suddenly words that I thought were good in the order I placed them suddenly were good coming out of the mouth of Michael Chiklis when they weren't good coming out of the mouths of others. Um, and, and, and that was a real big lesson to me that, that, you know, that my writing can't overcome you know, anything and maybe the writing's not as good as I think it is and, and you've got to find the right actor and you have to start writing for them. So he came in and, and still, listen, even though it was so amazing, I did go home thinking because yeah, I assumed this would be my one chance to ever create a TV show and that if it tanked, it might be the end of my career. I mean, believe me, I went home and said, am I really going to put the commish in as the lead of this show? I mean, is that really what, is that really what I'm going to have? You know, FX to say, I mean, the other FX show that we were competing with at the time had just cast Jason Priestley coming off of Beverly Hills Now 210. Yeah, yeah it was called Dope. Chris Brancato wrote, and I've since become you know, friends with Chris, and, 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 and so I knew we were in competition with this other pilot, and, and like they've got this sort of real hot star, and I'm going to go to the network and say, it's the commish, man. <laughs> like, it's the fucking commish. <laughs> and, and, yet, and yet, we kept looking for, I kept saying, okay, so, so, you know, so yeah, so the script, and I kept waiting for someone else to come in, and like, be at least as good as Michael, and no one ever came close. And so then we brought him into FX, and I was like, well, you know, is he going to be as good in this audition as he was in that one? And he was. We had brought in somebody else who wasn't nearly as good. And, every, and, and Peter Gorey and Kevin Riley looked around and said, yeah, it's, it's, it's Chickless. I was like, great. <laughs> and, and, and still, I was, until we got the cameras rolling, I still was like, I can't believe we're doing this. <laughs> But it is an ode to him and his talent and his willingness to put himself out there. Uh, and he, I mean, he talks about how he read the script and got angry because he knew that people wouldn't think he could do this role. And so he went into that audition with, with an anger and a chip on his shoulder that completely fed into Vic Mackey. And, 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 you know, and he'd, he'd worked out, he'd sort of changed his appearance, he'd shaved his head, and, you know, and, and then we started filming it, and, you know, and any, any shred of a doubt that I had kind of disappeared. I mean, you're seeing him do these scenes, you know, the scene where he goes in with the phone book and the razor and, you know, and the alcohol, and he ends up being the guy. I mean, that was one of the earlier scenes we filmed, and, you know, good cop and bad cop are gone for the day, I'm a different kind of cop. That scene, I mean, he, oh my God, I mean... It wasn't, it wasn't a case where we had to mine and find, you know, the one good take to use in the cut. Like, if there were eight takes, seven of them were great, you know, and in different ways. It was a pleasure to edit him because he would give you different wonderful stuff. And so it's, it's a case of someone knowing they could do it, knowing they had to prove it, and coming in and taking the job from our reluctant hands. Also, uh, the, Michael uh, being the number one on the call sheet, I mean, it's an incredibly important job. And, and the culture of the set, you know, you can live or die by who that number one is. And I had had some pretty awful experiences, both before and since. Um, I, I did moonlighting, so you can imagine what, 
And Michael was just a can-do guy. And, and, you know, we'd be in a crunch for time because there was never enough time and never enough money. And Michael would go, okay, we can get this, people. Come on, let's, everybody hustle. And he was a cheerleader for the show. And uh, it made all the difference. It, it just the energy, the, the intensity. And he, he uh, was always prepared. I mean, he always knew his stuff. And I remember being on the set one day. We had an actor who was sort of late in our run who um, didn't really sort of fit into the mix particularly well. And he uh, showed up on the set and was in the middle of a scene, and he went up on his lines, and he went, okay, cut, 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 cut. And Michael just came over and slammed him against the wall and said, you know, this is, this is my set. First of all, learn your lines, but nobody says cut on this set unless it's the director or me. And he wasn't saying that out of any sort of ego uh, uh, or, you know, proprietary sense. He was saying it as somebody who, who uh, felt like he was the coach of that, that crew down there. And he really was. And, and I yeah, think it, that all got on the screen. Yeah, I, remember, I remember reading once how the Cheers writers started taking delight in writing lines that no actor could possibly do to see if Kelsey Grammer could pull them off. <laughs> and... And, and I remember that because we would write difficult stuff to, like, say. And occasionally Michael would come to us and say, guys, this line, this and that. And, and oftentimes, you know, I or one of the writers would just be, yeah, not the greatest line. Probably going to be difficult. You know, you, yeah, you probably can't pull, pull it off. And he'd like, take that shit. Let me try. Let me, let me, let me try. I'm going to try. <laughs> you know, and, and most of the time he pulled off. Yeah, he, you know, like he t- would take it as a challenge. And, and, and so there were so many times where if it was other actors, we would have s- simplified it or toned it down. But we'd just see if Michael could do it. Uh, and, and the other thing is that, you know, since The Shield, I've, I've done a number of shows. And, you know, you have to think this was the lead of a network show in the past, the commish. So Michael was always a mensch. He was always very protective of the written word. And unlike other shows, he never sat down and said, okay, this is my show. Let me give you guys notes. I remember him saying, we, we started putting out some of these scripts and we were doing some really, you know, crazy stuff. And, and we started getting word back from s- some people on the set like, what are you guys doing? Can we do this? Are they going to shut us down? Is this going to be allowed? And Michael said, let them do it. Let them figure it out. Like, he protected the writers. He always, you know, was about the script and what was important. And he never looked at it as a star vehicle that, you know, this was his show. And he was protective of the show. But it was never that this show is here to service me. He was always in service to the show. Okay, can I, I, I remember... I, I, like so vividly as if it happened this morning um, uh, when Chickless walked in the room we had that first meeting with him where he came to the office and we I think we you know obviously the pilot was shot and you wanted to introduce him to the writers right so I just remember I, there I was in like this cholo fucking plaid shirt tattoo <laughs> with the ridiculous hair right? and he just this is what he looks at me he goes look at you and, then, and that's all he said <laughs> I just was like, is that good? Is that, is that bad? What does that mean? And then we had him kill you on the show. <laughs> now can you, uh, I, I wonder if 
Chiklis was the way he was because of the incredible brotherhood that you formed with the strike team. And obviously you're talking about Curtis and Ronnie and incredible Shane. Um, is that what I, 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 since I've been on the set, I saw that the camaraderie that those guys had, which is incredible, something that I've seen obviously emulated on Sons of Anarchy as well. But can you, is that something that just blew you away? You didn't see that coming a mile away, that these dudes would be so connected? Well, I hoped it would. You know, I'd grown up playing sports and had spent a lot of time in locker rooms. And to me, the strike team was all about locker room mentality, uh, both good and bad. The locker room mentality is not always the greatest thing. Um, but, but there is a camaraderie. Uh, I think any time you put a group of men or men and women, anyone, together in situations that are dangerous and they rely on each other for each other's lives, whether they're soldiers, whether they're firemen, whether they're police officers, um, I believe that there's a bond that starts to get created. Um, now, not to compare what we were doing to those professions, because that's real life and we're make-believe, but it was a very arduous production. We were putting our actors in really tough locations. They did not have great star trailers, our actors, to retreat into. Um, we, had, we were shooting nine, ten pages a day. And so, in their own way, they were going through um, a shared traumatic experience making the show that, that I think led them to really, really bond. You know, they, because a lot of the Dutch Claudette stuff was on our sets. You know, it would be in the interrogation room. And all of David Acevedo's stuff was, like, in his office. There was those strike team guys that had to go into some of the worst neighborhoods of Los Angeles and film till 5 in the morning, you know, where drug dealers were upset that that their corner was being shut down for production, and did they need a, did we need a security officer for the night? And yes, yes, we did. <laughs> you know, so those are the environments that they're in. And so I, I think, A, A, all four of them just naturally liked each other, uh, but B, that shared experience really, I think, started to show up on screen um, to the point where I, I think if you secretly asked any of them they would probably admit that they enjoyed doing their scenes together even more than they enjoyed playing scenes with Dutch and Claudette or David. I mean, they liked, they liked that thing. There was something about sort of lock, locking and loading, you know, the shotgun, Lem locking and loading the shotgun and then marching out into the motor pool to, like, go after stuff that, like, got them all jazzed up. And, and, and you can't buy that camaraderie. And when you start seeing your cast having it, you're just extraordinarily grateful. Also, the commitment that each one of them had to their characters was just at, at an Olympian level. And uh, the best acting ensemble I've ever worked with. And they saw that in each other. And it was sometimes hard for some of the guest stars to come in because uh, the bar was set so high as performers. Uh, and I think they just respected each other so much. Well, and they would commit stuff. Chick, tell the story about the first episode that you produced, you know, where they're filming in the street. Okay, so I show up on the set, and um, Michael, we're shooting at uh, Santa Monica Boulevard and Vermont during rush hour in the morning. And Michael's standing there uh, on the sidewalk, and Guy Furland was directing, and he was chewing his Nicorette, and he says okay, let's do this. And he spits his gum out. He says, come on. And he goes running across Santa Monica Boulevard in uncontrolled traffic. 
with, you know, no Teamsters driving cars, no police. He's just running out into the middle of traffic doing the Heisman, you know? And uh, and Billy Gerhardt, who was our Steadicam operator, was following him. So these two guys are just running out, and the cars are screeching their brakes, and and it's swerving out of the way, and and it, and then he gets to the other side of the road and turns back and says, uh, "Guy, uh, did we get that? Did we go again?" You know. <laughs> um, that same day, uh, I was standing next to the director, and we there was a young lady who I who was one of our extras who I'd seen over at the catering trailer about 5 a.m. and she was having a conversation with herself uh, about what I don't know, but it was very intense, and uh, I she had a very, very short skirt and um, uh, very high heels. And um, she was supposed to be in the background of a shot and her A mark was here and she was going to walk down the sidewalk because we were shooting a scene on the other side of the street. And she's walking down the street and in the middle of the take, a car pulls over. She leans into the car, starts talking to the guy, gets in the car... drives off and comes back about 15 minutes later and gets dropped off in the next shot. So, Guy is going, what's going on? And we had one of our extras tricking on set. And, and that was the shield, you know? I mean, I mean, there was this anecdote after anecdote like that, you know? I mean, that, that same episode, there were these two quite hefty um, uh, Latina women who were in a brawl in this location we were at, and they were drawing blood and really pounding each other. And I was standing next to Clark Johnson, and he goes, are these our people? Can we get a camera on this? Can, Can we get a camera on this? And so we were, you know, they were just having a fist fight, and we filmed it. And we, we just yeah, remember, we scouted out misery, basically. I remember in editing, they were like, you got to see this. And then the cameras aren't being, and our camera would always sort of pan off all the time. All of a sudden, it's panned off. I'm like, why, why are people fighting? That's not in the scene. And they're like, no, that was really happening. And w- one other story uh, that I, I have to tell we were shooting down at 77th Street. And uh, that was season five. Uh, and there had been a shooting, a police shooting of a 13-year-old boy. And the studio did not want us uh, to go down there. And Scott Br- Brazil just went, oh, fuck him. And uh, so we were shooting down there. And it was a, a scene in a crack hotel and stuff. And uh, there was this homicide detective, because we were right around the corner from the street, uh, the precinct, uh, came over, and I'm standing next to him, and he wanted to meet Chickless, and he met Chickless and stuff, standing there watching the shot, and he nods, and he goes, very smart of you to have that guy here. And I looked over, and I said, who? He said, uh, that's a Swan Bloods uh, shot caller. I went, oh, okay. Yeah, as long as he's here, you're going to be okay. Uh, we actually, uh, we like him for a double homicide. We were interrogating him, but we let him out so he could be here to keep the peace for you guys. And we'll pick him up after you uh, leave. Yeah, this, this is true. There was one time we, uh, we were shooting a scene in like a, you know, a drug den or something. We walked in and everyone was literally saying, okay, those are real needles. Stand over here. And it was just littered with drug paraphernalia. Yeah. 
All right, well, this, this goes to that. You know how you said you wanted to go for stuff that hasn't been seen before. So with the help of Solberg, uh, we, uh, we wanted to, we want, want you to take a, a, a trot down memory lane and address these indelible shield moments that you had and where, what was the inspiration. So my first one, and I always go to this first before anything, is when Armadillo's face is on the electric stove. I do hope you guys remember that. Remember, ah! Okay, where, did that come from the mind of Kurt? Where did it come from? <laughs> In, in, all, in all honesty, it wasn't yours. I mean, I, it's funny because I get asked a lot who came up with what, and oftentimes I don't remember. Uh, and 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 oftentimes, oftentimes is clear. So if Kirk came up with that one, Kirk came up with that one. Oftentimes it's oftentimes it's muddier. Somebody will say something, and then somebody else will put a spin or a twist. To become, you know, maybe the most famous one, I don't know if it's on your list, but when David Aceveda gets sexually assaulted, you know, was, uh, you know, I, I do remember that being a sort of group thing where, well, he gets assaulted and then, and different people had different ideas on, on what it became. And so I'm always reluctant to sort of assign credit for, like, who came up with what? A, because my memory, my memory is unreliable. If you guys' memory is better, then than great. But but B, I also know that usually it was the result of some twenty-minute conversation of everybody saying something that led us to this point. That you know, it was rarely somebody came in on Monday morning at ten o'clock and said, "I have this great idea. Let's put Armadillo's face on a stove." It was always out of the cauldron of the writer's room that this stuff would come. Stephen Bochco always had a metaphysical explanation for that because he hated people who took credit for ideas or because he, he felt that they were expropriating property All right, that, thanks, wasn't th- that, that wasn't theirs. And his attitude was that idea wouldn't have happened unless these five people were sitting here. So every person present is as elemental to the idea as, as any other person. And uh, I think that's, for my money, kind of how the shield operated. Well, maybe then the question is not who came up with it, but that why did you do it? Why did you burn Armadillo's face like that? Why couldn't you just stab him? Well, <laughs> I, remember, I, remember, I, I remember, once again, memory's faulty, and so please correct me, but my memory was that, that I was starting to get an itch in the back of my brain that Vic Mackey was turning sort of into Superman a little bit and that that wasn't a good thing long term uh, and that the, he always seemed to be in control and to make the right move and that, that kind of worked for a season and a half and people really seemed to enjoy it but I, I couldn't see that working for seven seasons believably and I remember us all talking about how does a guy like that lose control at some point uh, and how do we, you know, how, how do we visualize that? And so once again, I don't remember the specifics of who suggested the stove, but, but, but what I liked about that idea when I heard it was the idea of just this guy driving nuts, driving nuts, driving nuts, and now he does this really, really horrific thing for, you know, which there's no justifying. A lot of things with Vic, the audience would kind of half justify them. There's really no justification other than he's a shitty dude who's done some shitty things. Um, but I, what I liked about it, to me, the, the point of doing that scene isn't even so much the stove thing, but it's when Vic exits the house afterwards and there's this sort of 
haunted, pained look on his face. It's not the face of someone who, yeah, I got that guy. It's a guy who knows he's, he's sick to his stomach about what he did. That's what made that scene work for me. And part of the deal was, uh, uh, was Danny Pino, who played um, uh, Armadillo, uh, and they rhyme intentionally. Um, uh, but, you know, we loved him as an actor, and we had a, we had a longer arc for him. We, we knew that there'd be some retribution in that, and then it would come back to haunt Vic. So, and I think we had him for the season. So, we, you know, we, we couldn't, like, we knew we weren't going to, you know, off the guy in, in, in whatever episode, you know, so that it would be a full season arc. So then it's sort of like, well, you know, and, and I think all, the other thing, the cool thing about the face burn we realized is that when Vic meets up with him again, he's going to have that reminder every time he sees this guy like I did that you know because his face was brutally you know mangled and uh, and we thought that would be cool because then he's constantly reminded of that sick feeling in his stomach and that's that's you know how does he you know how does he how does he compartmentalize that and, and move forward I, I Sean also uh, Sean referenced the Aceveda uh, sexual assault and you know we were struggling with that character because he had been the precinct captain and had become a city council person. So in order to have him in the show, he was kind of like somebody's weird uncle hanging out around the barn. What's he doing there? And and there was a, it was it, the character became very in, inert because city council stories weren't particularly interesting. I mean, we tried a couple and, and then when we came up with this thing, first of all, it was hilarious. All the women who had been raped and cut up and everything in our show, we put those pages out of Aceveda uh, getting assaulted, and somebody said, this is godless. Uh, it's just the, the double standard that somehow uh, a guy getting assaulted like that. But what that did was to take a character and put him in motion through the rest of the run of the show. Uh, because there was vengeance, and he'd hooked up with Anthony Anderson's character, and he was exploring his own troubled sexuality and the the response that that that, that uh, uh, evoked in him, and it just made that character like incredibly interesting when he had been kind of just there. We're almost out of time, so I want to give. Does anyone have any questions out here? Just raise your hand and speak loudly. Anyone? I have one. Go ahead. She's asking about this process of writing a script. Yeah, I mean, what, what's difficult about that show and most serialized shows is that you can't really break episode four, for instance, until you've really finalized what episode three is. So as a group, we would be in the writer's room, and oftentimes we would, you know, there would be A stories, B stories, C stories, sometimes D, E, F. We may have gone to like a G story once on an episode. That's when I knew we were in trouble. Um, <laughs> but we'd sort of, we'd write... We'd break one story at a time, so we wouldn't worry about where they'd go in order. But, you know, so let's break the Dutch and Claudette, you know, murder story of the week. What are we going to do here? What are we learning? And so by the end, we'd have probably 25, 30 A story beats. We'd have 15 B story beats. We'd have 10 C story beats and maybe four or five D story, you know, Vic family beats or something. And then as a group, we'd sort of put them together in the order. And then, um, like I said, we, we did sort of outlines or story things for like the first four or five episodes, but none after that. And the writer would go off and, and write the episode. 
Um, and then everyone would get the script, and we'd meet in the writer's room. Um, and everyone had read the script, and I gave everyone a chance to weigh in on everyone's script. So a staff writer, you know, could give notes on my script, for instance. Um, usually what happened was that we had a lot of time at the beginning of the year, and when they're referencing the late nights, that was usually near the end of the year. That wasn't a constant thing. So usually at the beginning of the year, I'd give every writer an opportunity to write a solo script, usually, although maybe in season three or four, we skip that. Um, but usually, so usually do solo script, and then in the second half, I'd pair them up. You know, Kurt and Skeeter wrote a lot of scripts together. You know, for instance, Glenn and Adam, I, I recall writing scripts uh, together. And they'd come in, and, you know, usually I'd have notes, and everybody would have notes, and then they'd have to go off and rewrite. A lot of shows, they sort of take the script out of writers' hands pretty quickly, and, and the showrunner will then sort of put his imprint on it. I always, probably through my own laziness, would have them do three, four rewrites until it got pretty close. And then I would sort of take it to my office and do two, three outers of, you know, noodling and some line changes, and then that's what would go out, and that's how the scripts were written. Yeah, and, and sometimes you would, maybe if we were running out of time, um, you know, somebody would write a story. So if I had a script with my name on it, you know, you would write one storyline and you would write a storyline, then they would give me those pages and I would kind of tie the script together and polish. And so people were constantly giving, you know notes on everyone else's script would go to a table read and then afterwards the writers would sit together and say oh this line played better or how about this or whatever so we were constantly you know there was a checks and balances I guess or however you want to say it where everybody was participating in everybody else's material as well yeah, it's funny that they talk about how competitive they were because I actually preach the opposite so that shows my lack of leadership skills <laughs> Because I was always preaching, because it had been preached to me on previous shows I worked on, that no one's going to make their career off of episode 307 of The Shield, right? We can make our... If The Shield is very highly regarded, it's going to reflect well on all of us. So to me, I was always saying, it's your responsibility to make every episode great, whether your name's on the script or not. So I'm a little disappointed, well, we were, let me just Let me clarify that. When I say competitive, I don't mean... Like, for instance, we were competitive in that we wanted our ideas to be on screen. And so, for instance, you wouldn't hold back. So when we were breaking the story, if Kurt had an amazing idea or Glenn had an amazing idea, he wouldn't not pitch it, he would pitch it. But we were all trying to get our ideas past Sean. And that's what I mean by competitive. But in terms of, but never did we not collaborate and help each other out. I, that, so I, it's a little different. That's, I do like the, and, and I don't think I'm making this up, um, that you really, you also encouraged people to be proprietary in terms of like taking. Once the script was done, yeah, yeah. I was like, regardless of how much rewriting I did or how much, you know, or whether it was a gangbang at the end of the year, but if your name's on the script, you go to set and own every word of that and, and defend the script as your own, um, you know, on behalf of the show. And. You know, and we never, you know, there was never any, you know, and I, I believed in that. You know, and there are some shows where the creators, they do a lot of rewriting and they suddenly throw their name onto the writing credit. And, and I never, um, I never believed in that. And I also knew that, that whether it was a script of Skeeter's that, you know, I had to rewrite some scenes. I also knew that Skeeter was helping rewrite other people's scenes. You know, there was no point in, 
and getting you know down to the gritty nitty of of that and take pride in this episode and just because on that show, just because you finished writing the episode, just because the script's done, doesn't mean that there's not more writing to do as you get to set and actors have questions and directors have questions. And the, produ- the production of those episodes was every bit as important, if not more important, than the writing of them and making sure not only that the right words were said, but said for the right reasons on the day by the actors. And that, that it was important to have the moral authority of the author of that episode in order it's to... It's so nice. So, you guys are being so sweet to one another. Like, but, uh, uh, we have to wrap it up, but I can't, I, I can't end this without asking you, where is Vic now? You're the second person today to ask me that question. Was Kurt the first? No. Uh, and here's, here's the honest answer, and it's the answer I usually give, which is that I have some ideas where Vic Mackey is, but I don't know where Vic Mackey is until someone puts me in a writer's room with a group of these people and some people that aren't here and give us a week to sort it out. Because usually my first idea instinct isn't the right one. Um, you know, so I, I have some thoughts. I'd love to hear their thoughts, and I'd love for somebody to pay us, a, you know, for a week <laughs> to sit in a room and give Guys, everyone. Guys, let's an start answer. the campaign. Thank you so much. Thanks for coming. Now leaving Nerdist.com. 